Hi, I'm Chris Irwin. Welcome to The Come Up, a podcast that interviews entrepreneurs and leaders. The presenter started off his presentation and he said, none of you in this room are going to get a job at Goldman Sachs right out of school. Sort of the most deflating thing ever. And I've been preparing for this for an ungodly amount of time. And I was so angry for so long. But what I took away from that has stayed with me for my entire career. Because what he then went on to say was, I didn't start at Goldman Sachs. I started at X company. I then went to Y, then over to company A, and ultimately got to where I am today as a managing director at Goldman Sachs. And his point was that not all career paths are linear. You have to have different experiences along the way that ultimately allow you to become a better, maybe managing director at Goldman Sachs or wherever you were going. This week's episode features Michael Cohen, CEO of Team Whistle and Chief Transformation Officer of Eleven Group. So Michael was born in Long Island and grew up with parents who worked in tourism and technology. He decided to migrate to Atlanta for college kicked off his career in a financial training program at Wells Fargo. But he soon returned to his home turf in New York City to be an investment banker, where Michael learned how to tell stories with numbers. Of note, this is where we first met and actually worked together for a few years. Michael's career then progressed into private equity and strategy consulting. But he left to take an early bet in digital media and helped launch Whistle Sports in 2014. Today, Michael is the CEO and has spent the past year integrating the business into its new owner, Eleven Group. Some highlights of our chat include being denied by a Goldman Sachs recruiter, when wearing a suit can be bad for business, why the movie The Martian inspires his leadership, executing an M&A roll-up strategy and going from zero to 100 million in revenue, and learning how to play it where it lies. Now, I've known Michael for over 15 years, and he's one of my favorites to share industry notes with and riff about all things creator economy. Telling his story has been a long time coming, so let's get to it. All right, Michael, thanks for being on the podcast. Chris, thanks for having me. It's been a long time long time that we've known each other. So I'm, I'm excited to chat with you. Yeah, this has been a long time coming. I think I've been asking you to be on the podcast for almost over a couple of years now. There was some uh, assumed perhaps missed emails or lack of responses or who knows what, but finally able to make it happen today. I take the fifth, uh, <laughs> but I'm glad, I'm glad to be here today. All right, Michael. So I've known you for a long time, I think dating back to 2006. So this oh, is man. like, yeah, I know. it's pretty crazy to say that. It's like almost over 15 years starting in Wall Street finance into the world of digital media. So a lot to talk about today, but let's start, you know, where you grew up. If there's any glimpses into your early career. So let's rewind a bit and tell us about, yeah, where you grew up and what your household was like. So I grew up in Long Island in New York, a nice, uh, quiet suburban town called Jericho. I have an older brother and my two parents as well. And, you know, the town, it was a very small town. Everybody knew each other, which was great, but also, you know, a little bit of a bubble. And so, you know, I think having grown up in that environment, it was something that I, I liked a lot, but also you know, knew it was something I needed to get out of and, and experience the world a bit different. And I think part of my childhood allowed me to do that. My mom, 
She worked in travel, which allowed us to go to all different places. Some I appreciated at the time. Some <laughs> I certainly uh, did not as a kid. Yeah. Um, wish I could go back and appreciate some of those more. But you know, again, this is you know, well before we had digital cameras, let alone Instagram. So you couldn't experience a culture the way you potentially can today through Instagram or other apps. So got to have a feel for other cultures around the world through that lens. And then, you know, my dad worked in and around technology for his entire career, which was, which was pretty awesome. So he traveled to Japan a lot. And I would always, you know, we went to the consumer electronics show, which when CES, when it was actually consumer electronics, or at least more prominently consumer electronics. So I would inevitably have some new gadget. I remember a small, small little TV that had a massive antenna that I got channel two on, which was great, super exciting as a kid. And then I definitely had the first MP3 player, which I, I think it was called the Diamond Rio. It could hold like five songs. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it literally had, I, I think, five songs. You could upgrade the memory and you might get eight songs. It was literally the coolest thing ever. But like you'd use it to like go for a run because you had a Walkman. That was the only other thing. And it's like, if you do more than a 20 minute run, that, that's kind of it. But I, you know, I think being around, you know, my mom and dad who were both working gave me a strong appreciation for hard work and work ethic. And, and I think both of the industries that they were in gave me perspectives that, you know, I probably wouldn't necessarily have had, you know, and I'd say my, my older brother in terms of work ethic, not to say he didn't have great work <laughs> ethic, but he was wildly smart. And so he didn't actually have to work all that hard to do really well, which, you know, on the other hand, I believe I'm somewhat smart, but also, you know, had to do a lot of hard work to keep up. And that's just something that's always driven me. Michael, I think you have many moments of great intelligence. So, uh, you know, <laughs> don't cut yourself short there. All right. So with your mother in travel, your father in tech, did you have a sense of what you wanted to do as a kid? Did a lot of people in your community, did they work in New York City? Did they work in finance? Like, what were you thinking about your career as you were preparing for college? Yeah, we had a lot of different folks in the neighborhood. Some worked in finance, some accountants, a variety of, of folks that, that worked in different industries. I think for, for me, you know, business was something that, you know, was always an area where I wanted to focus. I knew I wanted to be, I, I guess, a, a businessman at that time you know, follow predominantly in, in my dad's footsteps and be able to, to work with a, a great company and travel, be a part of important meetings, a big team, you know, all that stuff was, was important to me. Exactly where and what that meant was certainly, uh, certainly TBD. Again, you know, we didn't have, you know, internet and all that stuff wasn't as prevalent as it is today to sort of understand all the options and, and choices. And actually a quick tangent to that, as a kid, what were your hobbies? What were your passions? What did you do outside the classroom? Played a lot of sports. So I grew up in a neighborhood that after school, all of us would get our bikes. We'd go to a park. We'd go to back to the school. We'd play pickup basketball, roller hockey, baseball, you name it. We were out until dinner time, And that was just awesome, being able to, to always be playing sports. And then at home, I would say, because you know I, I was able to get exposure to to a lot of the technology i you know i probably had the latest and greatest computers you know these massive machines and got to tinker around with that so you know played on the computers i i probably had the first cd burner uh, that 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 existed and 
turned that into a little uh, entrepreneurial business in high school, selling CDs. Burn popular CDs that you would buy at the time and sell them to your friends? There was like a very popular dance mix. I don't remember <laughs> what it was, but you know, it was one of those things. That I, I don't know if it was Tower Records or, or one of those like Malloway things that you get like 22 songs or something on. And it's a mix. I had this CD burner. My friend and I, we started selling these CDs for you know a few bucks to our friends. So it was a nice little side hustle back in high school. Okay. So there's a little bit of an entrepreneurial bent in you. I see that. So you decide to go to college and you go to Emory University in the South. So what were you thinking when you went to Emory? What was the plan there? It was interesting. My brother had gone to Emory. I went down to visit him, Emory in Atlanta, Georgia, early 2000s. The quote, Dirty South was, was really having a moment in terms of growth, in terms of sort of pop culture, a really awesome, vibrant place. And I think for me, you know, having grown up in more of a smaller neighborhood where he knew a lot of the people... I think feeling like a maybe a bigger fish in a smaller pond was was something that was was more exciting. And I think you know looking at Emory, looking at the curriculum, the school wasn't super small, but at the same time it would give me a warmer weather and the ability to feel part of the movement in pop culture happening at the time. And so from there you end up going into finance right when you graduate, which I think is around 2005. And I think you end up at Wells Fargo. What was your thinking there for your first role out of school? I'll back you up a little bit. At Emory, so I majored in, certainly in business, but with a concentration in, in finance and, and marketing. And again, I had always had the desire to be a leader, wanting to be the head of a company someday. Didn't know exactly what that meant at, at the time, but that was always something that was important to me. And so I remember going to a the school had put on, I guess, a roadshow of meeting different investment banks. And I got to go to Goldman Sachs in you know, the cream of the crop. And I remember this so, so clearly. I had my suit on. I had studied. I, I had the vault guides. I knew every question that could be answered. I was ready. And the presenter started off his presentation and he said, none of you in this room are going to get a job at Goldman Sachs right out of school. And what? I was, I was like, like, why are you, why are you there? I'm like, well, this is sort of the most deflating thing ever. And I've been preparing for this for an ungodly amount of time. And I was so angry for, for so long, but I, my, the, what I took away from that has stayed with me for my entire career. And, you know, it's something I pass on because what he then went on to say was I didn't start at Goldman Sachs. I started at X company. I then went to Y. I went then over to company A, and then I went to company B, and ultimately got to where I am today as a managing director at, at Goldman Sachs. And his point was that not all career paths are linear. You have to have different experiences along the way that ultimately allow you to become a better, maybe managing director at Goldman Sachs or wherever you were, you were going. Fast forward, I, that stuck with me. I didn't get a job at Goldman Sachs. And, and actually, you know, for the first time in my life, I, I sort of decided to, to take a different road. And I stayed in Atlanta after I graduated when a lot of my peers were, were moving back to Manhattan and, and New York. And Again, Atlanta during this time was really booming and I was excited about the city. And so I worked for uh, Wells Fargo in their corporate banking group, you know, where we were lending money to large Fortune 500 companies. It was a really interesting experience because it was so foundational in terms of 
learning and the training program that Wells Fargo had. And it was just an incredible training program, got exposure to a lot of different people, a lot of different industries that we were covering. And it really gave me a very solid foundation. And, and ultimately, you know, it was something that, you know, I would say started to lay a very strong finance acumen for me down in Atlanta. So I stayed down in Atlanta for a year after graduation and worked at Wells Fargo. It was a two-year training program. And my focus was, all right, it's not investment banking, but maybe I can complete this training program in, in one year versus two years. So I completed all of the training requirements. So this is actually where we have a lot of overlap. Right after undergrad, I also started my career as a corporate banker. I went to the Bank of New York. It's now known as BNY Mellon. And similar to you, we were lending to Fortune 500 companies across a variety of industries. So paper manufacturing, TMT, energy and utilities, and much more. And I remember spending a lot of time pouring over financial statements and getting into all the details. I learned a ton. Follow-up question for you, Michael, is what did you like most about the training program? What was great about the training program is that, and I remember this so clearly, it was like, They taught you how to hold your plate and a glass at a cocktail dinner. They taught you how to answer the phone. And you think about these soft skills that you take for granted today. You know, most people don't even use a phone anymore, let alone know how to actually pick up the phone. Go to a cocktail party, how how you're supposed to hold the glass on the plate with one hand so you have the other hand free to shake someone's hand. Little fun things that you learn outside of just the the core finance and, and accounting. But what was interesting and and why I ultimately decided to move back to New York was it was a little too slow for me in Atlanta at at the time, still very much a nine to five attitude in that city in terms of where I was and the opportunity to advance as fast as I I would have wanted. And so this is when I got the opportunity to move to New York and I landed a job at Waller Capital, which is where where you and I had had worked together. I remember that first meeting where... I think you had just joined within the past handful of months. This is, I think, in 2006. And very similar experience to you. Incredible training program at Bank of New York. Learned a lot from the leadership there, but wanted something that was more faster paced. Wanted to jam in the hours while I was young in my 20s, you know. I remember coming to an interview at night in the office. And this was a small office, I think at like 30 Rockefeller Plaza or One Rock. And meeting at the upstairs meeting room, it was in the dark and I walk in and I think we do like a 45 minute or hour interview. And I was like, wow, look at this guy. He's got a similar background to me, but he's super sharp. He's very confident. And you got me very, very excited about the role. The interview I had was okay, but I guess it was good enough to give me the job because I remember getting an offer letter shortly thereafter and then uh, joined the company a few weeks after that. But I'm curious, one of the things we talked about before was building three legs of the stool, right? Each of those legs being finance, operations, and strategy and leadership. And so what do you think that you got out of your experience at Waller Capital and then you moved after to the Cypress Group thereafter? What was the financial acumen that you were really building at that point? I think it was a few different things. It was a core foundational skill set in you know, corporate finance and, and accounting, which is really understanding you know, how, how the numbers work, how an income statement, a balance sheet, a cash flow, not only how that works, which I think I, I learned in Wells Fargo, but in investment banking and in Waller Capital was more of how it's applied. Because you know, what we did was we were advising companies 
as you know, you work there, but we were advising companies on, you know, raising capital to support their businesses and more often selling the companies, right? Helping them with the most important moment of their lives to sell them to somebody else. And so how do you write a story based on these numbers and present them to the marketplace? And, and I think that was what I learned there was really the combination of how to use numbers to tell stories. And certainly learned a massive attention to detail. You talk about Jeff Brandon, who we both worked with. I remember what he said to me. He goes, he goes in our business, 99% right is 100% wrong. And that's really stuck with me, the, the detail side of that. Because what he was trying to say was one wrong number calls out your credibility to a client, to a potential buyer, and it's cast judgment, cast doubt on the rest of the financial model. And so we really the threshold for being correct was there was really zero tolerance. And so it taught you how to double check, how to triple check your work, how to work with others like yourself to ask questions, to make sure that you're approaching things the right way. And so I would say the storytelling with numbers, the attention to, to detail, and then again, work ethic. I mean, because we worked long hours together to ultimately be able to deliver for, for our clients. And you had to find a solution. And I'll give you an example of that, which was we had a pitch. It was a very large pitch. And we had done the pitch deck. We were all ready. Again, while our capital was media and telecom, I don't think we hit that early. We spent a lot of time focused on cable companies. And these cable companies, if you zoom out of a map of the United States, like it's like a puzzle. And there's pictures of this map that we would often use in our pitch decks to show how some different assets were a strategic fit in different areas. Well, that needed to be part of a physical pitch deck. And unfortunately, the files were so large that they couldn't print out. Again, this is like 06, so didn't have like these great printers that you can buy off the shelves today. And I had said to the managing director, like, look, sorry, like, there's just nothing I can do there. These, it won't print. Like, it keeps jamming. It won't print. And the response was like, that's just not acceptable. I, I need this for a pitch tomorrow morning. It's got to be at my house by 4 a.m., my house in Greenwich by 4 a.m. because I've got a 6 a.m. flight. So, okay. And I've got my, my new shoes on, my, my new suit, you know, my investment banker gear. Meanwhile, I'm living on a couch at this point. And I go down to the financial printers on Wall Street and begging them to take this file. The financial printers were the people that actually printed out all the 10Ks, all the SEC documents that had to be physically printed back in the day. And I begged them to, to find a way to get this file open. And ultimately, after going to three different ones, I found someone that was able to print it. They printed it. I bartered with them. So instead of charging with me, we said, hey, the next virtual data room that we use will go with you. And I took a, uh, a black car all the way to, to Greenwich. I dropped it off. My feet were all blistered up. You know, I ultimately got home, got a couple hours of sleep and back in the office by nine o'clock. I think you know, while going through that, I was obviously fairly frustrated and tired and exhausted, but it taught me that every problem has a solution. You just have to work it hard enough. And so I think those three plus years at, at Waller Capital really instilled a core foundation in sort of how I work and not only what I know, but, but how I work and what I really am able to do. Very well said. After investment banking for a few years, you then head to private equity. 
you head to the Cyprus Group and Torque Capital. So tell us about that experience and what the training was there that was setting you up for the rest of your career. You know, what was really interesting coming out of Waller Capital after three years was, I don't know how many different sell-side mandates we were on, but probably, I don't know, 30, 40 over, over my time there. And sell-side is when, as you know, but when you're selling a company to the marketplace, so you're representing a, a seller and you're going out and you're positioning them to a marketplace of buyers to, to ultimately sell it. Now, what was really fascinating for me and what I wanted to do was go on the opposite side. Okay, you sell the company. Now what happens, right? So a buyer buys it. What do they do now? How do they operate it? And Cypress Group was a $2.5 billion private equity firm that was, you know, I would say they were focused on diversified industrials and manufacturing. And for me, what I wanted to get next in my career was a broader exposure to the economy. And so no better way to do that than getting more involved in industrials and manufacturing. The other side of it is I, I wanted to be involved in the actual operations of the company. And Cyprus was sort of nearing the end of its fun life, but really was focusing on you know, portfolio operations. And so it would give me an opportunity to really roll up my sleeves, work with various executives in each of these companies that they had owned and literally be on the front lines of operations. And I think that was an incredible experience, particularly because the fall of Lehman Brothers happened uh, during that. And so when you have exposure to everything from automotive companies to kitchen cabinets during a recessionary period, how do you operate those businesses, right? It's one thing when you you know you can't stop selling kitchen cabinets. It's an, and uh, it's another thing when home builds are cut in half and you know, you've got a massive manufacturing line that needs to be retooled or, or relooked at. And so how do you fix that? And so I was able to go to many of the interesting places, similar to, to our days in Waller Capital, driving around the country and various markets, and get on the manufacturing floor. What I remember very clearly are, are two things. One, the first company I went to that we owned, I was wearing a suit, tie, you know, nice shoes, and, you know, clearly bringing a New York aura uh, <laughs> to this to this company that was in, uh, in in Tennessee, I believe. And it was like, who is this guy? What is he doing here? How can he possibly help me? So I quickly learned, you know, culturally, you can't get things done by decree. What I quickly did was the next day I, I changed. I was no longer wearing a suit. I was a little bit more more suitable. But I, I started just asking questions and listening. And what I took away was what are the biggest pain points that the CEO has that some of the some of the senior managers have? And ultimately, I came away from that trip knowing that if I could solve some of those pain points for them, and some of them were fairly easy. You know, some of them were, hey, I need just better communication between the board and and us, or hey, there's this issue that keeps popping up. These were fairly simple, but it just required connecting of dots to do. And I did that. And what was magical out of that was the respect and credibility that I was able to, to get. And so from that point on, you know, I was able to acclimate and get involved in these companies in a way where you know, I was started to be able to to understand truly, you know, what would move the needle for them as operators versus, you know, me wearing a New York private equity hat. And that was probably the most fun I, I had ever had. And it really reinforced my desire to really be an operator. 
you know, so I had now investment banking, private equity experience. After two years, private equity was a two-year program. You sign two years and then you're typically off to, you know, business school or you do something else. And ultimately, you know, I had asked the head of the the private equity firm, I I asked for his advice on what I should do next. I said, hey, should I go to business school? I had taken GMATs. I had done well. He was a big golfer. He said, play it where it lies. He goes, you're sitting in the fairway. Why would you go to business school? You've already got the education. Everything you would have gotten, you've seen. You've been operating. You've been operating through these tough environments. And this was about the time where we saw an opportunity in the market to create what I would call a lower middle market distressed fund that would focus on these smaller companies that were sort of forgotten during the post-Lehman era that were still extremely valuable, had a lot of asset value, again, from manufacturing, whether that was equipment or what they were doing, but just were victims of the challenging environment. And so going in, helping to restructure those, bringing those back to life, it was awesome. I was the best. So after two years, I joined a couple of folks there we created this, this vehicle called Tor Capital Group. It still, still exists today. We made a couple of investments. I was really part of the very beginning of a fund, the very beginning of the investment that we made, putting together a 100-day plan, living in places like New Hampshire and outer Georgia, really working with the operators on what is this next iteration of the company. And so that was just such an incredible experience. What I sort of took from that was, Ultimately, I was more excited about the top-line growth side of things, the innovation that was happening in, in Silicon Alley. So that then sort of led me to a, the next stage of the career. A few interesting notes there. One, in terms of really listening and being aware and understanding the cultural nuances, right, when you're working with different companies or leadership, dude, I feel you on that because I remember you and I used to do this. We used to do the cable tours when we were in banking. And I would show up to the middle of nowhere, Missouri, or middle of nowhere, Wyoming, to a cable head end where we were representing the seller and the private equity company and their buyer and their leadership and diligence team would come out and they all just be in general outdoor work gear. And I'm showing up in a suit, slacks, nice leather shoes. And I was totally the odd man out. I thought that dressing nice like that would get me respect in the room or respect in a a situation because I was typically 20 years younger than everyone else that was there. And that was not the case. And I learned pretty quickly. It's like, got to adjust the wardrobe and I got to listen more to the people that are around me if I'm going to have an impact in this situation. So I think that's very right. And your boss, I think at the Cypress Group said, play it where it lies. So probably around that time, it's 2011 for you, I decided to go to business school because I think I realized I was making a change where I wanted to change geographies, I wanted to change roles, I wanted to change industries. And I felt that I didn't have the right skill set and I didn't have the right plan. And I needed to kind of like reset and take two years to get the operating experience that I needed. But it's funny, we took two different paths, but ended up in pretty similar industries thereafter and pretty similar roles that have, you know, diverged over the past few years. So it's just funny to kind of reflect on that. All right. So then after Tor Capital, we're going to get shortly to, you know, your rise in digital media at Team Whistle. But I think there was a quick stint of strategy work that you were doing. Tell us quickly about that, and then we'll get to uh, your current role now. So now, you know, I've got what I, the finance acumen under me. I've got the operational acumen under me. And I see very clearly what I need next, which is more of the, I would say, strategy work that was missing. And 
what I was looking for at the time was, you know, do I jump into a startup and take some sort of role that's, I think at the time, everyone coming from private equity or MBAs was looking for a business development role or a strategy role within, within these companies. And, you know, I got some really great advice from an angel investor who introduced me to the CEO of Fahrenheit 212, which their whole mantra, how do we take an existing asset, existing distribution channels, existing, you know, marketplace position, and how do we leverage that to create a new product, a new technology, bring that to market, and ultimately build a startup within a Fortune 500 company? And I was advised by the same investor who said to me, he said, you know, go talk to Fahrenheit. And I think this is a great bridge that will ultimately get you into you know, more of that operating role, that startup role. But this is a great place to go. You'll have the ability to work with you know, large Fortune 500 companies that you've been working with, but you'll also be able to, to help them work on new products, new innovation, very exciting activities. And so got the job where I was uh, an engagement manager. And so my, my role there was to lead different engagements. And so I got the opportunity to work with everyone from Citigroup to Samsung and a number of others in between, but, but big companies and, and big challenges that we were trying to tackle for them. One of the best pieces of advice I got from the founder, a guy by the name of Jeff Valletta, stuck with me, he said, you know, free yourself from the fear of failure. What he was saying was a couple of things. One is, in innovation, you're going to fail sometimes. But if you play your hand scared, you're never going to innovate. And you know, the team that we built at Fahrenheit was there to support you. So it was one, you know, the team around you is here to support you. So don't worry about you, know, you failing. Uh, and two, don't worry about the product failing because you're going to learn from it. And it was about iteration. And so it was a great environment to frankly retrain my brain. Because in banking and private equity, when you hit a wall, you think about how do I financial engineer around this? How do I cut it? In innovation, when you hit a wall, that's opportunity. It took me a number of months to, to sort of retrain my brain on that notion that you know this is opportunity. And so how do we innovate around it? How do we innovate through it? What does this mean in terms of opportunity? And that to me was an incredible experience. I was at Fahrenheit for about a year and then I left and ultimately started my, my own consulting company. And why did I leave? Well, something interesting happens when you work with Fortune 500 companies and you deliver them, at least in my experience there, was you deliver them this great strategy, you deliver them this great idea, they sign off on it. Two things happen. One, the person who's the key stakeholder, they get promoted and it's no longer their, their problem. Or two, they decide to take it internally. They're like, this is great. We're going to run with it from here. And so the idea of you know, me getting to build a startup within a Fortune 500 company was not really a super viable path. You're able to bring the strategy to life, uh, but often you know, they're going to run with it on theirs. So obviously, lots of internal stakeholders, lots of different things you need to do. And, and being inside the company was how you're, they were able to be successful with it or take it. But at that point, I was very confident in the skill set that I had built. And so I started my own consulting company called Who is M. Cohen Ventures. Can I just ask why Who is M. Cohen? A friend of mine, he was more advanced in the social media space at the time than I was. And in terms of branding and everything, I was like, I need a Twitter handle. What Twitter handle should I, should I do? Like I couldn't redo my, my AOL handle from high school 
So he, he's like, what about who is M. Cohen? There's so many Michael Cohens out there. What about who is M. Cohen? And so I took that as my Twitter handle. And then I just started branding a lot of other things with it. I liked it. Hey, listeners, this is Chris Irwin, your host of The Come Up. I have a quick ask for you. If you dig what we're putting down, if you like the show, if you like our guests, it would really mean a lot if you can give us a rating wherever you listen to our show. It helps other people discover our work, and it also really supports what we do here. All right, that's it, everybody. Let's get back to the interview. After Fahrenheit and after Who Has M. Cohen Ventures, you join what is now known as Team Whistle back in 2013. I'm curious to hear from your point of view how you ended up making this transition, because I do remember when I was graduating from Kellogg, and I was working for a company called Pritzker that actually invested in Big Frame and Awesomeness. And I joined Big Frame back in, I think, July 2012. I remember increasingly getting calls from you being like, hey, Chris, I see you're working at Big Frame. You're in the YouTube MCN world. Like, what's going on there? What are you doing? How are you building? And I remember the frequency of those calls really ratcheting up. And then I think there was an eventual call I got from you, which is, oh, hey, I joined Whistle. And I thought that was awesome. I loved having one of my financial brethren making the move into a digital media where there's going to be some more like quantitative focused minds and strategy minds entering the mix, which we needed. But how did that come to be from your side? I was doing the consulting thing as Who is M. Cohen Ventures. And you know, one of my clients was, was The Whistle. And I was doing consulting for probably six months. I had a number of clients, probably had five different clients. And I wasn't sure whether I was going to just keep building a consulting company or do something else. It would actually, frankly, gave me the opportunity to date a lot of really interesting companies. I worked with small seed stage companies, some more funded companies, and some actually Fortune 500 companies as a consultant. But I would say what got me to join Whistle was two things that happened. One, I would come home and, and I would talk to my wife and she said to me, she goes, you know, what's interesting, you talk about all your clients. When you talk about Whistle, you say we. When you talk about your other clients, you say they. And so it was a really interesting, subtle observation that, that she had made. And then two, Chris, as you know, back in time, you know, this was a wild, wild west. Uh, not many people knew what YouTubers were. You know, it was probably the only platform that had creators. I don't think the term influencer was coined yet. And then Disney comes in and buys Maker Studios for a billion dollars. And so I sit there and say, well, one, there's a great team, a small team, but really interesting people that are here. And then two, there's just got some validation in this in this industry that you know, perhaps there is some validation coming from Disney. And at that point, John West, who was the founder of, of Whistle, he said to me, he said, hey, uh, we got to raise some money. So can't have my finance person as a consultant. So you're going to join? You can create a consulting company anytime in your life. This is, you know, it's not going to be many opportunities you get to join a company at, at an early stage like Whistle. And he's a great salesman and a great, great mentor and friend. So I jumped on board at the time. It was called The Whistle. And uh, that began the nine plus year journey that I'm still on right now. Got it. When you first joined, what was the mandate? Was it, hey, Michael, we need to raise money. Let's get the model and the deck together. And then the money's raised. And what was your mandate immediately thereafter? 
So they had raised some seed capital. You know, really, I joined in 2013, and I would say our public launch was January 1, 2014. And the premise of what we were trying to, to do was, if you were to reimagine ESPN today, how would you do it? Right? That was the question that we were, we were asking ourselves at the time. And it would be very different than, than what was happening back then. You know, traditional media, in our view, underserved today's generation. You know, it was mostly a one-way broadcast directly to you from the old guys with gray hair talking about the glory days, talking about this scandal, that scandal. And, you know, when I came on, the, the mandate was to help figure out what's the initial strategy that we want to take this on. And our view was looking at you know, how ESPN came to be and studying it was ESPN came to be on the back of cable and satellite providers. They bought sports rights and you know, again, they, they sold them and then sold it to telcos and had licensing fees and all that type of stuff. Our view was that the next company was going to be built on the back of social media companies. So instead of cable and satellite, you were going to have the Facebooks, the YouTubes, et cetera. But our view was that instead of sports rights, it was going to be social influencer rights. And so the first step of what we did was we created a, a sports MCN. So you know, like a big frame before us or a maker or style hall, all these others that were either you know, generalist or they were very vertical focused, style hall being you know, more of fashion and beauty, taste made being more of, around food, there was still room for, for sports. And so the first thing that we did and that I was part of was, was really trying to come up with that strategy. And so once we landed on the MCN strategy, which you know our view at the time, we came after a number of other companies was instead of this actually being the destination we're trying to go to, it was more of the vehicle. And what I mean by that is we would create this MCN. We'd have a lot of creators under our belt. It would give us access to tons of data which would then give us the ability to learn more about the audience and then figure out how best to serve serve that audience. So I would say the initial part of me coming on was helping with the capital raise, putting the deck together, putting together the financial model. But you know, in order to put together a deck and a financial model, you, you of course need the business strategy. And you know, looking back nine years, it's very easy to tell a, a linear story on, on what we did. But you know, between us, that's Yes, right. We all know building a company is is not a linear story. So that was the first piece of of coming on. When you launched in January of 2014, did the launch go as expected? What surprised you? So we were so focused at the time of being like a very good for you sports media company that you know we we launched Dude Perfect, as I'm sure many many people know, one of the largest creators in in the world. I think they were only two million subscribers on YouTube at the time. Now they're multiples of that. They were one of our launch partners and a number of others were. We had PR around it and it was great. And then we're watching YouTube videos and we see like you can block certain categories that you don't want to run ads. And so our whole premise was certainly no alcohol, only really positive advertisements that could go on it. We didn't want you know, soft drinks. We didn't want certain junk food. And so I think we, we got served like a Pepsi ad or something. And it was caused like a whole panic of, of are, we, are we having sugary drinks? Are we allowed to have sugary drinks? Are we not allowed to have sugary drinks? And I think, you know, that was a, that was a, funny, a funny moment. But at the time, you know, the rally cry was build our subscribers, the subscriber network on subscribers being on, on YouTube. So, you know, we had different targets that we, we ran after to bring creators on to hit a certain subscriber threshold, 
which you know, was more of a proxy for our the size of our our audience and how we would be able to to monetize it. But I remember that early on, it was getting a little overspooked on a on a very non-controversial ad that ran in pre-roll on YouTube. Yeah. And I have to ask, what was it like for you to start working with creators for the first time? Like for me, coming out of finance, so venture capital, business school, Wall Street, I was very accustomed to working with private equity leadership, sophisticated investors, C-suite executives from the companies that we were representing. And then transitioning into this intersection of digital media, technology, and entertainment, working with creators and personalities, working with the representatives that manage them, that was an entirely new world for me, both working with those talent and the reps in-house and then also out of our building as well. So did you have a lot of creator exposure early on at Whistle? I would say I wasn't leading the creator efforts. We had an awesome person named Julie Kikla who came from, from YouTube that helped us launch that. Dave Sethi then came on, who I know has been on, on your podcast here, but definitely got exposure to the, the different creators. And I would say that my diversified experience in the past very much helped me for how to navigate, how to partner with these creators who, you know, very often, you know, they're not sophisticated businesses. And certainly at the time, they, they weren't. First and foremost, they're incredibly talented, innovative creators that they're most suited to creating incredibly engaging content. The monetization side of it was where we came in to help them. And so trying to apply a commercial acumen to a creative acumen often was easy to meet with challenges. But I think my my prior experiences where you know the story in private equity where you know had to really acclimate to the the people around me working in the strategy roles and having you know empathy for what it's like to be in a in a larger company, what it's like to be in a smaller company, understanding you know both a commercial desire but also a, a creative desire and how that all works together. I would say it gave me the tools to have a lot more empathy for it. Certainly didn't prepare me for the world of momagers and datagers and how um, intensely passionate those folks are about their sons, their daughters. But I was prepared, but but I've learned a lot in terms of how to partner. So phase one with the initial launch of Whistle, call it like the MCM stage, right? And some learnings there. And then I think there was a decision where working with the team, you guys then enter phase two, where you're investing in intellectual property, audience growth, capabilities. And this is, I think, where you transition from Whistle Sports to Whistle. So tell us how that came to be. So we went from The Whistle to Whistle Sports. We started off as The Whistle. When we launched, we were we were Whistle Sports. It was important to make the point that you know we were Whistle Sports. We weren't well-known at the time. So making sure that the name stood for what we were was important. But as we evolved and as we studied the data, we learned that sport was being defined very differently for this generation. You know, we were focused more on a YouTuber generation, I would say, you know, mid to late teens to mid to late 20s. We learned a lot from them and, and really no greater learning than they are really defined by the intersection of multiple passion points. So sports fans today are very much, yes, I may be a ravenous sports fan, but I am also care about the pop culture aspect. I care about the music aspect. I care about the culinary aspect of it. And so, you know, very often today we're taking it for granted because you see on Instagram, you can see an athlete out partying on the yacht and what they're doing behind the scenes. You see them walking their dogs. You have such a more intimate exposure. 
And I think at the time, you know, again, it was really only YouTube was the platform that had the most data that you could get followed by, you know, Facebook started, started to get in it. But we learned from the data that there was a white space that we could create content in that was more what I would call sport attainment. And as we were talking to a number of our advertising partners, they said, you know, look, your name's Whistle Sports, but, but you're not sports. Sports is you know, what I would say classically defined as what an ESPN is doing, uh, what a Bleacher was doing, a Turner was doing at the time. You guys are more entertainment. Like the content you're creating is more entertainment. And if you focus on you know, sports and entertainment, that's a much bigger pot that you can focus on. So have you thought about dropping the name sports when you're going from your go-to-market standpoint? And we started to test it. And all of a sudden, we were getting lots more RFPs, lots more inbound interest, lots more PR opportunities, because we were really defining a new category. And early on, I would say, in that category definition, people would say to us, you're trying to be everything to everyone. You know, you're really sitting in, in this middle bucket. And what we tried to convey and what is true today is that, no, 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 that's a category of, of our own. So trying to define us in yesterday's boxes is not the right way to approach it because we're creating a new box for ourselves. And so that began you know, really where we were consciously investing in our, in our own content, building a diversified network of platforms. So we, we wanted to be diversified across not just YouTube, not just Facebook, you know, as many platforms as possible, knowing not wanting to have the risk of you know, being tied to any one platform in particular. And so how was your role changing at the company as you were rising up and as your business was evolving? You know, as we start to invest in, in our own product, I got the, the opportunity to expand my role and, and sort of oversee that. Now, I wasn't running production, but I was over, overseeing the production side of things. And so you know, my role was really focused on, you know, at this point, not only how we operate internally, but the product that we're creating. And I think one of the approaches that I took to it was, you know, very often in, in media companies, there's a separation, of, again, of this creative and commercial. And there's a tension, there's a massive tension. And there's often like a wall in, in true editorials, environments or newsrooms, there is a, a wall. And in our world, it was, you know, my focus really was about trying to align commercial and creative again. And that was something that, you know, has really been important throughout my career is trying to get people to see and understand certain things from different perspectives. So I would say you know, one of my strong abilities is to help connect dots that people aren't, aren't readily seeing. And so why commercializing a piece of content is important to our ability to do you know, new and interesting creative endeavors. And so it was really about trying to align the product and revenue needs together so that we're able to create really cool, compelling content but we're not creating content for content's sake on a gut or a hunch. We're doing it because it is somewhat grounded in, hey, this is com a commercially viable type of thing that we can, we can be taking to market. So I spent a lot of time on the product side and our product being content for the most part. After this point, I think you enter what you describe as phase three, which I think began in 2018. This is a bit of the inorganic plan, where this is where you're starting to exercise some of the skills and abilities that you learn from finance, banking, private equity, and you conduct an M&A roll-up strategy, enhancing your capabilities by buying other companies. And I, th I think there's three specific acquisitions that you led. And I think as you described, you're starting to marry live sports and entertainment in a more meaningful way. 
Tell us about that point of the company. This is really, again, focused on IP, audience, and capabilities. I think at this point, as we're building the company, our focus is, okay, we have a creator network, which is awesome, and we can help those creators continue to be successful, both in terms of helping to monetize, but also in terms of you know bringing them into the IP that we're creating. So that creator network, the creators that are part of our, our company still to this day are still core to everything that we, that we do. Now we're creating our, our own IP and we're monetizing it mostly via both indirect programmatic revenue and then direct sales. And so, you know, as we keep expanding into IP and keep expanding into this entertainment area, we saw that there were opportunities in 2018. Really, if you remember, I think this was sort of the nuclear winter of digital media. We had little things which they were on top of the world, and then the Facebook algorithm shifted and they went out almost overnight. Uh, we had Mashable, which was a, a darling at the time, which was frankly, fire sold. And this then began, I think, Cambridge Analytica around the time, lots of scandals around social media, video, compression in CPMs. And so we saw an opportunity that you know, there were a lot of companies that had raised a lot of capital. They had a, a choice to make. They didn't necessarily get to the scale that they wanted to be. And so the choices were, we shut down the company, we raise more capital from other investors, or we partner with someone else that can you know, potentially get us to the promised land. And so we saw that opportunity that most people would probably want to choose the, the last piece. Many investors were tired by 2018. The tolerance to put more capital into these companies was, was few and far between. The desire, and frankly, the PR nightmare of shutting down was not something that people wanted to do. And so we started to be very smart in terms of, okay, if we were going to build this vertical or build this capability ourselves, what would it take us to do? How much capital would it take? Or who's out there that we can go and, and take a look at? And so the first company that we had gotten introduced to was a company called Newform. Newform was based in the LA ecosystem. You know, Whistle was still primarily focused in New York. And we knew if we were going to be taken seriously in the Hollywood ecosystem, you know, we really needed to have a studio. And so this is, again, the time where lots of streaming platforms are coming out, new types of mediums are being created. And so we bought Newform. They brought in a strong slate of, of IP that they had already created. They already had a number of distribution partners, some that we had, some that they had. They had scripted, we had unscripted. So it really made us a, a very strong studio. And with the, the who's who around the table, gave us a pretty strong signal to the market in a market that frankly was very challenged. You know, we brought in this skill set to integrate these companies and then be able to do more of them. And so we then got an opportunity to look at a company called Vertical Networks. Vertical Networks was a JV between Liz Murdoch and Snap. They were primarily known for Brother, which was the largest Snap Discover channel at the time. But the problem was they couldn't get off of Snap. They didn't have, you know, both from a capital standpoint and just from a capability standpoint, they just weren't able to scale off platform to other platforms as fast. Well, we already had the other platforms within our distribution, but we also didn't have as much on Snap. So it was a nice little partnership where we were able to come in and take a look at Brother, work with a lot of the existing people on that team, rethink what Brother was, reformat some of the shows. And that really gave us you know, more of the IP and audience. So now we've got 
both. We've got IP from both Newform. We've got IP from vertical networks. We've got a much bigger audience coming from vertical networks and the brother. And then, you know, what we realized was, okay, now we've got more IP, more audience. We need more capabilities to take this out into the marketplace. So we acquired a, an agency called Tiny Horse that was based in Charlotte. The premise of that was really adding more capabilities that we could bring out to our brand partners that we could help you know, different distributors and other partners with subscriber acquisition because so many different streaming platforms coming out. How can Whistle not only use their audience, whether those are paid marketing, our inventory buying, other types of strategy work and identity work that we could do to help these different companies navigate what I would call the digital transformation. We brought that skill set in. And so we built you know, a very strong company that had this nice puzzle coming together of IP audience and and capabilities serving a younger demographic with a great suite of partners. A couple quick beats before we get into the rapid fire to close this out. So now you have this incredible platform. You started to put the puzzle pieces together for a really exciting new build, a new growth strategy for the company. And then at this point, I think you guys, you sold to 11 sports in 2021. What's the quick story there for how that came to be? Was the M&A all with the intention of let's put the pieces together because we're going to run a sales process for the company or was the acquisition unplanned? John West, our CEO, has, has a great saying. He said, companies are, are never sold, they're bought. So we never thought about putting ourselves up for sale. We had raised a lot of money over the years. And you know, really, we had now, to your point, put together a lot of these puzzle pieces and it was really about fueling growth. We went out into the market in 2020 to raise some additional capital to, you know, I would say, one, continue to weather the, the COVID storm that you know, had impacted a lot of media companies, but two, be ready with a war chest to capitalize on, on opportunities, capitalize on, on what we've already were building, and then other opportunities coming out of that. Ultimately, got a number of different term sheets from mostly debt providers because we, we did not want to focus on diluting the company. And then 11 Sports had put in an offer to buy the company. And 11 was someone that we had known well. Their main investor was Acer Media, backed by a guy named Andrea Radrazzani. He sees the world in a different way than most, and frankly, very aligned to the way we see the world. So 11 was focused more outside of the United States. They're more of a sports live rights, more of their focus. And they operate in a number of, of markets outside in Europe and Asia. And they saw what we had already been seeing. Sports is being defined very differently. And so what we saw was together, we could unlock the power of live sport and on-demand entertainment and win a lot more hours of the consumer. And so if we could better serve the consumer, ultimately, we would be able to monetize in more ways. So when you start to put these pieces together you really are creating a, a global sports media and entertainment company that plays across live and non-live. And you know, both with an entrepreneurial spirit that you know, can continue to be more scrappy than, than others out there. And so our board, John, myself, we all recommended that this was the right opportunity that together we could get to a much more meaningful outcome for all stakeholders. We could better serve our partners, better serve our audience, and ultimately, of course, our, our shareholders. It's an incredible story, Michael. I have to ask, looking back on all this, you've helped the company raise over $100 million in capital. You've helped take the company from zero to $100 million in revenue. 
going back to the beginning of this interview, the through line of building the three-legged stool, right? I need finance, need ops, strategy, and leadership. Do you think that this is like the ultimate culmination of all of your hard work? So do you look back at this and be like, I did it, I'm content? And then second, I want to hear about what are the two or three key learnings about how you are now a better executive from this experience and what you will take with you going forward. But let's start with the first one. Well, first of all, it's definitely not I. The most important thing that I learned is it's always we, never I. I try to take blame for the failures and would want the team to take and have asked the team to always take credit for the wins. I don't think you can be a leader in today's environment by being an I person. So in terms of looking back at the last nine years, the thing that stands out for me is adaptability is the reason that we are still alive and kicking today. John, our founder, he has a saying, and I think it's been attributed to Darwin, but we'll do that. It's not the strongest or the biggest of species that survive. It's the ones that are most adaptable to change that survive, right? That's really been our our operating mantra. And so you know, between that and a nice quote that I that I love from The Martian, the movie and, and the book, it says, um, you know, at some point, everything's going to go south on you and you're going to say, this is it. This is how I end. You can either accept that or you can get to work and that's it, right? You just begin. You start to solve problems. You solve one problem after the next. And then if you solve enough problems, ultimately you get to come home, right? He was on, he was on Mars. And that's just been a mantra of ours. And again, goes back to that very first experience in investment banking was solve the problem, right? And there's nothing that can't be solved by an incredibly talented team that we've built at, at Team Whistle. I'm lucky to have the privilege to work with, with all these great, great folks. And it's been a fairly humbling experience. Do you feel on this, you know, almost 20-year journey, partially satiated? This is what I set out to do, of course, with a whole team around you to make it happen. Because this kind of impacts how you're thinking about what's next. Yeah, I do feel somewhat satiated. I think I felt it probably for a little bit after the acquisition. And for me, throughout the journey, I started as EVP of finance and operations. I then took on the COO title. I then took on the president title and then ultimately took on, on the CEO role. And I think each one of those was a milestone that I had, you know, okay, have I arrived? Okay, have a and that's and being able to appreciate that in the moment is something that I probably wish I spent more time appreciating in the moment of having arrived at that and celebrating that. I just thrive on searching for things that haven't been done, doing them, working with a great team, getting to be challenged every day, and working again in the media and telecom space, this intersection of media, tech, and commerce. It's so dynamic. And so there's always a challenge every day. And so for me, the satiation comes from the challenge, the constant challenge. And maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong. But you know, I'm enjoying what I'm doing now and you know, continuing to build. And that's what's fun for me is the opportunity to continue to be challenged and build. Final question before rapid fire. In terms of what's next, you know, with the acquisition, you have been leading the integration and transformation of the company, right? Your chief transformation officer of 11 sports. So are you coming to the end of that process? Is there a lot more work to do there? And what do you think of next for you? It's been an incredible opportunity. Um, Mark Watson, the, the CEO of the 11 Group, and Andrea, who's also involved, the whole team have been great. And getting the opportunity after selling your company to help lead an overall transformation effort, not only integrating your company, but working with their company as well, 
has been a really incredible experience getting to reimagine, rethink the, the strategy, how we evolve it. I think we're only getting started. I don't think transformation necessarily starts and stops. There's certainly some infrastructure building, some tactical things that we had to get done. Now we're able to actually just keep executing on that plan of, of winning more hours of, of the consumer, whether that's you know through different types of content, different types of products we're putting out, different types of distribution. That's the fun of it. So I would say the journey continues. And as long as I'm being challenged and having fun and get the, the opportunity to work with great people, that's something that keeps me going. Well said. In closing, I just want to give you some kudos. You know, I've known you longer than most people in my professional career, over 15 years. And I think you are a big part of what sold me on coming into investment banking and also getting my foot in the door. Just like you, all the skills that you learned there was what I learned. And that is what allowed me to get into business school and then to join the whole digital media revolution and big frame and awesomeness and actually hire our old bank to uh, represent big frame in the sale. And so you were a big part of that, Michael. I'll give you a ton of kudos for that. You know, I think our relationship's been a fun give and take where you got inspired by some of the things that I did. And that was a catalyst to your entry into Whistle. But then you just took it to a whole nother level. And it's been really awesome to see. And so I've learned a lot from your rise up. And then I think you even brought in our advisory firm to help you when you were looking through some different VOD strategies a few years back. So very thankful for that. And it's just been a delight to know you professionally and personally. And I think there's much more fun to come for both of us going forward. And I think like we said in the beginning, we're going to have to do some outdoor activities or some sports or something like that next time we hang out. I'm all ready for it. And I appreciate the kind words, Chris. And you know, all I would say is right back at you. It's just been, uh, it's been a great friendship, a great partnership. And we're still in the early innings to use the sports analogy. Let's get into uh, the closing rapid fire questions. So six questions. The rules are as follows. You can answer in one sentence or in just a handful of words. Keep it short and sweet. Michael, do you understand the rules? I believe. All right, let's kick it off. Proudest life moment. Coming a father. What do you want to do less of in 2022? Zoom. What do you want to do more of? In-person discussions. That fuels my energy. What one to two things drive your success? Short answer. I would say just a, a relentless desire to learn and to be challenged and to work with great people. Advice for media execs going into 2022. Know your audience, know your partners, serve them well, don't feature chase. Any future startup ambitions? Might we see who is MCO Ventures coming back into the mix? <laughs> I would say I've always had the entrepreneurial itch and you know, there's a lot of good ideas out there and, and great people to partner with. For right now, I'm, I'm focused on leading Team Whistle, uh, continuing to lead the, the transformation office at, at 11, bringing a great outcome to all stakeholders. But uh, let's, uh, let's revisit this in a couple of years because I, I think there's something there. Maybe you can come lead uh, the sports media division at Rockwater. It's an opportunity. Maybe. <laughs> all right, Michael, this is uh, the last one pretty easy. How can people get in contact with you? Always up to chat. You can email me. You can hit me on Twitter, text message me, LinkedIn as well. I'm always up to collaborate, meet smart, great people, help make introductions, connect people. All right, awesome. Michael, this was a ton of fun. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate you having me. All right. That was a really fun interview. As I said at the beginning, I think I've been trying to interview Michael for the past couple of years. So thrilled that we could finally make it happen. All right. But a few quick points before we wrap up. So 
We just had an awesome executive event at Jelena in LA a few weeks ago. We brought together various live stream commerce executives for a panel, so included Pop Shop Live, Stage 10, and Market. That was a lot of fun, and the Jelena rooftop never disappoints. It was great to see a lot of you there. We do have another executive event coming up in New York in early November. More on that to come, but there'll probably be an event in advance of that as well, maybe around VidCon, so stay tuned. As always, if you want to attend our events or learn more or interested in being a sponsor, ping us at hello at wearerockwater.com. And then we always love to hear from our listeners. So if you have any feedback or any ideas for guests, shoot us a note at tcupod at wearerockwater.com. All right, that's it, everybody. Thanks for listening. Come Up is written and hosted by me, Chris Irwin, and is a production of Rockwater Industries. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. And remember to subscribe wherever you listen to our show. And if you really dig us, feel free to forward the Come Up to a friend. You can sign up for our company newsletter at wearerockwater.com forward slash newsletter. And you could follow us on Twitter at TCUpod. The Come Up is engineered by Daniel Turek. Music is by Devin Bryant. Logo and branding is by Kevin Zazali. And special thanks to Alex Zirin and Eric Kenningsberg from the Rockwater team.